to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 13. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Erica Goodwin, the CEO of Goodwin Wellness Enterprises, LLC, and Goodwin Medical Associates, LLC. She is a board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. She is also a best-selling author, speaker, and integrative lifestyle coach. She's a proud graduate of Spelman College and Emory University School of Medicine. She completed her general psychiatry training at Morehouse School of Medicine. She became a Gene Spurlock Congressional Fellow before training in child and adolescent psychiatry at Harvard. She is passionate about improving mental health, making people feel loved, cared for, and seen, and helping people see the best in themselves. In addition to her clinical work, she has co-authored Thinking About Quitting Medicine, Volume 1, Mind Matters, A Resource Guide to Psychiatry for Black Communities, How Amira Learned to Love School Again, a story about ADHD. Her new book is Fix Your Fairy Tale, A Woman's Guide to a Great Life, Love, and Legacy. Along with working as a traveling psychiatrist, she also has an adult telepsychiatry practice. Dr. Erica also mentors and volunteers as faculty at Morehouse School of Medicine. Her goal is to enable women to embrace their authentic selves, free from the expectations of others, while living a life filled with love and joy. In her free time, she enjoys traveling and cooking. Dr. Erica lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Erica is also a good friend. It's interesting how we met. I was running a race in Jamaica and ran into a good friend, a Florida A&M classmate, Dr. Valencia. Dr. Valencia was there with her girls. This was a girls trip before the movie. Shout out to Will Packer, another Florida A&M University graduate. Well, I met Dr. Erica, Dr. Keeley, Dr. Dara, and Joy that trip and decided to join them the following year for the next Rage Half Marathon. Again, thank you for joining me. I'm excited to have you on today. Dr. Erica is beyond awesome professionally and personally. I consider her a dear friend. She is a fellow product of an HBCU. I've had many famuans on. So you're my first person from Spelman. Thank you. Yay. I wanted to talk to you about imposter syndrome. My podcast is called Running is Cheaper Than Therapy. And it's 
not a running podcast per se. It's based on movement from a wholeness and a mental health aspect. Mm-hmm. And imposter syndrome can be seen there professionally and in other realms. So I wanted to talk about imposter syndrome. The definition, for those who don't know, it's a psychological pattern in which individuals doubt their skills, talents, and accomplishments. They have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. I actually learned about it watching Insecure. I don't know if you're an Insecure fan. I'm a season behind, though. Okay. Episode five, they talk about imposter syndrome on the wind down, which is how I learned about it. I didn't know what it was until this year, actually. Oh, wow. But when I heard the, the definition, I'm like, that's me. Is that an adequate definition of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things about it is that persistent doubt. So I think that's a good one. I can roll with that definition. Okay. Would you go into more details or would you say that summed it up? I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, we can talk about it in more detail if you'd like, but I think that sums it up. What causes imposter syndrome? What causes imposter syndrome? It's a complicated question to say exactly what causes it. I think it's probably a little easier to go through kind of what it is and why you may see it more than what specifically causes it. So how does one know if they have imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome can be a little bit sneaky. And it's one of the reasons why you may not have even known the name of it until you came across it in this Insecure episode, because it's almost like it gets into people's belief system about who they are and what they can do. So one of the things that you often will see is, as you noted in the definition, is that persistent doubt of your abilities. And one of the key things around imposter syndrome is that you're doubting your abilities, your accomplishments, even though you have them. So even though you have more than enough skill to do something, you are significantly accomplished, you doubt your ability or the qualifications that you have, even though you have them. So one of the ways to tell is if if you know you've studied and you know you've done things, but you still feel like you're never good enough. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happens is people with imposter syndrome, if you notice you are working all the time, but it seems like other people aren't, you might have it because what ends up happening is people with imposter syndrome feel like nothing they do is good enough, which leads them to most likely be perfectionists, which means that they're going to work longer and harder on things that may even be necessary to actually get whatever the task done because they're doubting their ability to do the task well. And the thing about it is one of the key things is that this doubt isn't fact-based. It's not doubt because you can't do something. It's Mm -hmm. doubt because something inside of you makes you feel like you just aren't good enough. And this can happen or come up from partly in the community since this was originally identified in 1978 by two psychologists Mm -hmm. in women. That naturally there's a natural propensity to see it in groups that tend to either be marginalized or to frequently be told directly that they can't do something, they're not good enough, which is one of the reasons why you see it probably more commonly in women, but Mm -hmm. also in minorities. Yes, because I've seen it talked about mainly in women and women of color or black women. 
So what causes it? Is it low self-esteem or is it just doubt or hearing things that you believe from other people saying that you may not be good enough? Or is it a separate or is people with low self-esteem have imposter syndrome? Are they two separate entities? It's not either or. It's more of an and. Okay. I would say it's more of an and because a lot of people with imposter syndrome, and they've looked at it and said that around 70% of people will have at least one time of having imposter syndrome. But I do significantly believe there are groups that are going to be at higher risk And that may have this for significantly longer. And to me, it's a little bit more complicated than just simply low self-esteem. You can have someone with imposter syndrome with low self-esteem. Okay. But there's that overwhelming society culture where there are some people or some groups that are going to already be dealing with the fact that from a very young age, they're going to be told they're not good enough. And that can be from your gender. It can be people that it's their race. It can be people that just had some other difficulties, even people that are overweight. That something in society is consistently reinforcing that you aren't good enough or you can't do something or, you know, I don't know how many people I know. I know we're both physicians and how many people we know that there were school counselors that told them they shouldn't be doctors or they can't be a doctor. The first thing is this input that's coming either from society or people around you, literally telling you, you can't, or you aren't good enough to begin with, or you don't have the capacity to do something. So I think that's one layer. And then there are other layers related to someone maybe's innate self-esteem related to also naturally, there are some mental health conditions where people are going to be prone to doubt or have what we call negative cognitive distortions, such as depression. Okay. You kind of see things as, it's like the opposite of seeing things through rainbow glasses where they just seem like you see kind of the worst or something catastrophic or something's not good enough. And naturally, if people are having negative thoughts about themselves, then they're most likely not going to feel particularly confident. So it can be multifactorial. How prevalent is it? (laughs) Up to 70% of people will experience imposter syndrome in some form. It's interesting. When I was in, I think I was in high school or middle school, I had just got inducted into some honor society. And I was in this club called 4-H. And this one girl told me she was surprised because she thought I was dumb. And I don't know why, like when I have a bad day or something goes wrong, like I do bad on the test, I remember this girl calling me dumb. Anyway, what are the different types of imposter syndrome? I think I feel like I'm a perfectionist. And sometimes it causes me to not try new things. I feel like if it's not perfect, like why even put myself out there sometimes? So I have to like have this internal dialogue with myself when I'm doing something, when I'm trying something new, even like at work, if it's a new case or even doing this podcast or even when I wrote a book, I'm like, I'm not an author. I don't write well. So it's like I always have to have this internal dialogue telling myself that I can do it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just start it. and You always can improve. But if you never start, you'll never get anything done. Right. So they've labeled about five types of imposter syndrome. And actually, you started with one, the perfectionist. Another (laughs) one is the superwoman or superman, even though one of the things that's kind of neat is 
you can tell that they talk about women a lot of imposter syndrome because a lot of times you'll see Superwoman, mm-hmm. not even see Superman, even though men can experience this. The next is the natural genius. They have one that they call the soloist and the last one, the expert. And with the soloist is just like they can't depend on anyone else. It's like they have to do everything themselves. Mm-hmm. So I wonder which one is more prevalent. I'm not sure how many studies they've done to kind of try to break out to say which one is more prevalent than another. Is this, I guess, a DSM-5 diagnosis? No, even though imposter syndrome was described by two psychologists, it is not in the DSM. Okay. So I thought it was a relatively new term, but it's 1978. So the term has been around for a while. Well, and I think some of it is, and and for your listeners that aren't familiar with the DSM, the DSM is like the Mental Health Diagnostic Bible. It's the book everyone used, so it stands for Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And then the number just, they have a whole bunch of them. So right now we're on five. I think some of it is imposter syndrome is probably talked about more in a business construct mm-hmm. than in medicine. So okay, there are certain terms that people will use in business or networking or those kinds of things. I think the thing is, is that it's just not used as much in the context of medicine, probably because so many people have it. Okay, that's true. I would be literally having a conversation like, you have imposter syndrome. You have imposter syndrome. syndrome. Uh, (laughs) True. But yeah, it's been around quite a while. I don't know if it will ever make it into DSM, but I do think it gives really good language to describe something that really can be hampering from a personal and career standpoint. I was doing some reading and it was interesting some actors and actresses that quote unquote have imposter syndrome. Tom Hanks was one, Serena Williams, Lapita, Tracy Ellis Ross were a few that were mentioned in this article I was reading. I'm not surprised though. I'm not either. I guess just being an actress and being, I guess your profession is upfront and it's You have to show the world to see, basically, versus some that might be more behind the scenes. Well, I think it's a testament to the fact that whether or not you have imposter syndrome isn't always related to the amount of success other people would perceive you to have. And it reinforces with the definition is that you had this doubt over the abilities you actually have. But along a full gradient of experiences and views of success, money, all those kinds of things that you could also have people that are very successful with it. And one of the reasons you think that they could be very successful with it is what are people with the imposter syndrome going to do? They're going to work really, really hard. So not only are they qualified, but then they work super hard, which would make them potentially end up being potentially successful. But the flip side is some people don't end up as successful as they should be because they kind of cut their own selves out. They may not apply for jobs or opportunities because they perceive themselves to not be qualified when they are. Do you think a lot of people get burnt out because they're doing 10 times more because they don't think they're qualified for a particular position? Yes, I do think it can lead to burnout. 
I mean, it would be exhausting to be constantly trying to do things and not feeling like you ever really did it well. So I would not be shocked if anybody that is really dealing with imposter syndrome would eventually get burned out. So do you have clients or patients that you see that have imposter syndrome? And if so, like what are some of the treatments or suggestions that you give them to try to, I guess, ease that burden? I see a lot of people, especially because my private practice has a significant amount of professional women. And it kind of parallels with the fact that this was all kind of described in women that you would see in a lot of professional women. So one of the things I recommend for people and one thing I recommend in general with imposter syndrome is it's good to kind of have like a little committee of two or three people that are going to tell it like it is. And when you start to doubt yourself, can remind you of everything you've actually done. Mm hmm. Because a lot of times people with imposter syndrome get so caught up in their head thinking they're not qualified to do something that sometimes it takes someone external to remind them that they are qualified, remind them of all these things they've done, remind them of all the qualifications and experience they have. So it's nice to have two to three people identified that are just kind of, I'd say they're more than cheerleaders because part of it is they're going to tell you fact-based information about what you've actually done to reinforce that you're actually qualified. Okay. Another thing I recommend is for people with imposter syndrome, you need to know where your CV or resume is at all times and have a printed copy. Mm -hmm. You start to doubt yourself, look at it and remind yourself of everything you've done. Because the average person with imposter syndrome says they think they're not qualified. They forget all of this stuff they've actually done. So some of this is like reality testing about the fact that you are actually qualified and also pushing yourself to go ahead and not be in the space where you feel like you can only apply for something or do something if you feel like you're overqualified is to just kind of if you see something and you decide you're not going to try think about why you're not trying actually think about it and if you feel like you know and the people that are with me usually they have something else going on mm -hmm. The other thing is if it gets to a point where you feel like you just feel super stuck, then it's good to get some help of some sort, be it if you're just feeling stuck and it doesn't feel like you actually need therapy or that you're depressed or something else is going on, then it may be useful to get a coach. But there are times where it's useful to get a therapist or a psychiatrist. Do you recommend therapists for people who, I call it maintenance therapy, like nothing is really going on, but just to kind of keep you centered or your best self. I'm a fan. One of my biggest inspirations when I decided to go into psychiatry, there was a book by Nathan McCall called Makes Me Want to Holler. And there's a point in there where he talks about people don't get mental health checkups. You'll get a physical checkup, but you don't get a mental health checkup. And I'm a strong believer in, number one, it's helpful to get a little help before stuff is a crisis. So it's always good to get a little checkup, see if everything's cool, if you need a little something, something. But I do think it's good to have maintenance. I think one of the great things about it is all of us that do therapy, and I do want to specifically say psychiatrists can also do therapy. So I actually have quite a few therapy patients. I don't just prescribe medication. This is someone that it's literally their job to listen to you. You don't have to worry about being a burden. You don't have to worry about judgment. It is someone that's literally paid to non-judgmentally 
listen to you and help you work through anything that's going on with you. So on that end, I'm a believer that that can be really helpful. Do you ever experience or have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? And how did you deal with it? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I accidentally dealt with it. What do you mean by that? Doctors. (laughs) They all told us we weren't supposed to succeed. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure I had some experiences when I was younger, but, you know, even as an adult, definitely, you know, you second guessing yourself, wondering if you're really good enough, you know, written multiple books, but, you know, having moments like, am I really an expert? Mm -hmm. So, yes. And also medical school and fellowship were difficult for me. They weren't always as supportive as I would have hoped. Mm -hmm. And naturally, there are times in my professional career where you weren't really sure someone really wanted you to win. I think for me, part of what was helpful is I've always had very close friends and I have a very supportive family. So being able to tap into them was very wonderful. I'm also an avid reader of self-help. Okay. (laughs) And I actually have multiple coaches. Okay. I started running after my mom passed away. I had actually clinical depression. And running, well, I started it as a way to lose weight because I gained a lot of weight. I'm an emotional eater. But I found that I felt better after I ran. But I've been running and doing different. I just started doing triathlons and Imposter syndrome sometimes creeps in there because I just learned how to swim technically in 2017. It's basically mind over matter, particularly in a race. And I find a lot of other athletes, it's like they doubt their abilities or they don't look like a certain person or they may not be as fast as a certain person, but they're still an athlete. So do you have clients or would you have any advice for my listeners who are New to a sport or just want to try something out, but these doubts keep creeping up in their mind or they may not have a $10,000 bike. They may just have a hybrid, but they want to try to do a triathlon or they may not be able to swim as fast as this other person, but they know how to swim. So one thing that I do is when I freak out in a race or in a pool, I just tell myself I can swim. This is one of my mantras. Because I might not be fast, I might not be the most technically sound swimmer, but I can swim and I won't drown. So that kind of calms me. But other things that you would advise people who are trying to get over that fear, that uncertainty, trying to do something new. As far as when it comes to athletics, one of the first things to just remember is for each athlete, especially if you're not in the level of elite athletes, is I can swim. I'm not going to be Michael Phelps. No, far from. (laughs) The first thing is, is, is being realistic of where you are. So if you're new to something, you're not going to do it to the same skill level, you know, be the same speed, do it as well as someone that has been doing it for what feels like a lifetime. So some of it is having realistic expectations of yourself that if you're going to even look at it from the view of being a perfectionist, you want to be the best version of you. So I understand. I actually swam competitively. I didn't know that. I did. I was consistent, but I was, did not have a high level of natural speed. And as an athlete, you know, there are some people that are just fast at any sport. 
And they're usually, when they first start, they're super fast and they have the worst form of anybody. Mm -hmm. They run crazy. They swim all crazy. They have horrible form and somehow they are faster than everybody else. And I had excellent form, but I just (laughs) didn't have as much natural speed. I was never going to be the fastest person in the pool. I was very consistent. I was good for points and I mean, <laughs> but I was never going to be the absolute fastest person. And I think some of it is just learning that you're going to be the best you. And if you're new at something to release yourself of this expectation that you have a skill level that doesn't match what you did, and mm-hmm. that you have to celebrate all the wins. And I think that's where when it comes to, if you're looking at athletics and for being a perfectionist, one of the things is, is you have to celebrate all the wins. It's like, if you just learn how to swim, swimming 25 yards is a win. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time you swim in open water from being in a pool is a win. It sure is. <laughs> you know, the first time you get on a real road bike, that's not just rolling on your huffy. Mm-hmm. It's a win. You know, and I think it's a lot of what happens is people start looking at what is the end goal and nothing that is in between. So it's, I want to run a marathon, but I've never run a mile. Well, you're not going to go from never run a mile to running 26 point, the 26.2 miles. So not celebrating and acknowledging all the steps in the middle, you'll feel like you failed when you actually were successful. And when it comes to things, one of the things I recommend for people that when it's outside of this kind of perfection, when you're just trying to do athletics is one thing, but when it's other kinds of productivity, it's something else. And there is a book by Dan Sullivan called the 80% approach, which is gold. Okay. It's the best 36 pages I think I've read in my life. Really? Okay. Because it literally talks about ways to fight procrastination and perfectionism. Hmm, I need to check it out. Yes. And the thought about it is, is that most people, their first effort is 80% of what you need. And a lot of times that is good enough. And he talks about all the different strategies to increase your productivity and move through tasks faster. That also then relies on the people that you have for support. And I think for a lot of people with imposter syndrome, part of it is you're thinking you can't do something when you already did it well. So having some other strategies to help kind of get in there and make you go ahead and do things and get them off your plate makes a huge difference so that you're not just sitting stewing over every single task, wanting it to be 100% perfect when no one knows the difference. So true. Before I started podcasting, I listened to a lot of YouTube videos and Pat Flynn, one of his videos, he said, you don't have to be perfect when you're trying to record because some people want the whole hour or to be perfect. I mean, that's why you learn to edit. So just do it and don't think so much about it because if not, you take forever trying to just do an hour show or episode. So I thought that was helpful because I've tried to do it before. I've recorded an episode like three or four times initially. <laughs> and I'm like, just get it done and go back and edit it question for you. I'm not sure if this is on the realm of imposter syndrome, but comparing yourself to other people are thinking by the time you reach a certain age, you thought you would have this, you would be married, you have kids, you didn't like your job, but then you pivoted into coaching. 
So I guess in comparing yourself to other people, because I feel the same way too, I thought I would be married. I thought I would have a successful you know, group orthopedic practice with 2.5 kids living in Atlanta. I think that's where I wanted to live initially. And my life is totally different, although I'm happy, but it's not the life that I thought I would have that I would need in comparing myself to Sally, who has this life and my life is different that sometimes some people think just because their life is not that same way that they shouldn't be happy, but life is what you make it, in my opinion. Well, I think that's a great point. And part of it is, is each person's journey is different. So between everyone's journey is different and you don't know about people's lives behind closed doors because there are plenty of people that you go on social media and they look like the happiest person ever. Like everything is perfect. They have the cutest kids. You know, their spouse is hot. They have a big old house driving a G-Wagon. And then you find out behind the scenes, they hate their life and Mm -hmm. life is miserable. I think those comparisons can get, number one, they're emotionally exhausting. Number two, we don't always know the journey that God determined for us. We don't always know his plan, (laughs) but I do think comparisons can be mentally exhausting and can give people a false sense of failure and can then minimize the level of success or value that they've had in their life by shifting their focus to everything they don't have. So from a mindset perspective, it's when people get in that space of doing a million comparisons and coulda, shoulda, woulda, wishing they had stuff that you're literally sitting in a mindset of lack or scarcity Mm -hmm. because you're literally just sitting focused on every single thing you don't have. And it's hard to be happy. And all you're thinking about is what you don't have when you don't really know if what may be around the corner could be better than what you even wanted, or if you had gotten what you thought you wanted, if you would actually been happy with it. That's true. I do think that those comparisons can be a bit destructive and was one of the things that led me to do my book. It wasn't just comparisons, but also just this thought that this is the life we're all supposed to have. And if you don't have it, you're jacked. And what I was seeing around so many people between friends and patients was that people were having a lot of self-destructive behavior because of this frustration of this lack of not having this dream the way they wanted it. And then it was causing people to just, you know, people and, you know, I did some stupid stuff too. Just to make dumb decisions out of these spaces of feeling either unfulfilled, unvalued, or just like you have not done what you were supposed to do. So tell me more about your book, Fixture Fairy Tale, A Woman's Guide to a Great Life, Love, and Legacy. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. The interesting thing is it came out in February right before COVID. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, where everything just seems to hit pause. Yes. For a little while. But I was so excited to do it because I originally outlined the book way back in 2004. Okay. But I didn't actually write most of it until 2019. Okay. So it had 15 years to just cook. Okay. One of the reasons I think it needed to cook so long is I needed more life experience, which I think gave me a different perspective for when I wrote it, because the theory behind the book is that there's this fairy tale that women are taught 
and socialized into from a very young age that our goal is to get married. And if you check all the boxes and do all the right things, you're going to get married. You're going to have the two and a half kids, a dog and a white picket fence and the perfect life ever. And that these things are all going to magically happen if you are a good girl. Yes. And what we're seeing happen more often is that people are getting their education. They're doing what they were taught to do. But there is no reward of this husband and kids at the end of the rainbow. And then people are stuck feeling distressed or disappointed or frustrated because life isn't the way they wanted it. But then also they feel undervalued because society puts such a value on womanhood being defined as a mother and a wife. Mm -hmm. People feeling like they aren't woman enough or they have not done their life's work because of that. Number one example that's easy to know is when when you hit a certain age and you talk to people or you go home and the first question is when you get married. Yes. Where are your kids? Are you having kids? You walk into the GYN and they're like, you think about having kids? You got to think something. Yeah. Now, you know, so it's that feeling like no matter what you accomplish, that it doesn't really mean anything if you haven't gotten married or had the kids yet. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write a book that was a self-help book that has practical solutions that if people do what's in the book, you're going to come out the other side totally different. And mm-hmm. the, the thought behind it is, is that there are concrete steps to help you move from being in this mindset of scarcity lack to one of abundance. And by getting to abundance, you're going to get to a point where you're going to, through the book, you're going to identify what your dreams are, what you actually want. Because there are a lot of people that what they think they want is what they were told that they want. But it's not really what they want. So uh, it's to help people identify what actually they want. Also do the work on themselves so that they can have healthy relationships. And feel comfortable and confident to go after what they want to get to a point where then you're at a place where then you're attracting the kind of relationships you want. You're able to feel valued and you're able to live life on your own terms instead of what everyone else tells you. Was your book written at the same time that you started doing lifestyle coaching or is it totally separate? I outlined it way before. Okay. So I was a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow when I came up with the book. And then when I wrote it, it was prior to starting coaching. How long have you been in coaching? I started my business late last year. But I started doing more of the work um, in this year. So tell me a little bit about your other, I know you do telehealth, psychiatry, and you do a traveling psychiatrist, which is interesting. It's not the typical medical doctor, which is something I admire too. <laughs> For some reason, there's only one of me. I'm a little bit unique. <laughs> I feel like when God made me, he broke them all. I feel the same way too sometimes. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I never would have thought as growing up, I'd always been one of those people that felt like I had to follow all the rules. Like even at this age, sometimes I get stressed out if I don't follow the rules. Me too. Like we're supposed to do it this way. <laughs> so it's very ironic that being such a rule follower that a lot of my career has literally been outside the box, but I love it. There's so much flexibility And, you know, I love traveling and I would get to workplaces where I would never consider living. 
never. I've done a lot of work in rural communities and just all over the country. And it's places I probably didn't never would want to live. Mm-hmm. But it was great to have the experience of being able to work there and help people. And I was going into a lot of communities where they would have never had access to a Harvard trained doctor. That's good. I think you're the person who told me about locums because I didn't know about it before. And I've done several locums assignments since. Thank you for that. I do what I can. I do what I can. Too bad they can't see the video. I'm just making all the faces. <laughs> Doing all the gestures that your listeners can't see. They can just imagine. <laughs> Tell me something else I read about you, which I thought was interesting. You were a Gene Spurlock Congressional Fellow. Tell me about that experience and what made you do it. So the interesting thing is kind of like how they say you have a plan and God laughs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a point in my career that I actually had wanted to be a lobbyist. Really? Okay. Yes. So there was a point where I had decided I really wanted to do work in health policy. So I went ahead and did the Gene Spurlock Congressional Fellowship. And I was actually the second Gene Spurlock Congressional Fellow. And I worked in the House with the Honorable Donna Christian Christensen. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that point, she was one of the only physicians that was a congressional member. Okay. And she's from the Virgin Islands. And when I worked there, it was really eye-opening to understand how policy works. And her healthcare policy person was phenomenal. But the interesting thing, when you get on the Hill, you realize that most people, healthcare policy is like the area, it's like the hot potato. Nobody really wants, a lot of people don't want to do it. So the irony is, is even though, and I love how he put his name was AJ Jones. He puts it as health policy decides who lives and dies. But when you get there, you realize that since nobody wants to do it, for a lot of members, the person doing it was junior and didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So ironically, the thing that determines if you lives or dies is in the hands of someone that doesn't know what they're doing, which I can see on our present healthcare policy. Doesn't know what they're doing or don't care or don't have that level of experience. And my member was very interested in universal health care. So I helped with putting together a very large roundtable around universal health care, because this was significantly before the Affordable Care Act. Interesting. We have that in common. When I was in Philadelphia, I did a program called Center for Progressive Leadership, and I wanted to be in health policy. And when I was in Philadelphia, I used to go down and lobby on different uh, policies. And I met this anesthesiologist who's actually now in Congress. But the politics kind of turned me away from the whole of the health care policy. Well, the crazy thing is what turned me away is I got, I was so mentally exhausted when I finished fellowship. I just decided I needed a break. I was mentally and physically exhausted by the time I finished fellowship. Boston was rough. So I literally, my mother came up there, packed me up. We went back to St. Louis I didn't drive at all. She drove the whole way because I was useless. I was so mm-hmm. exhausted. <laughs> and I just took a regular job. Okay. Because I was just so exhausted. And then I ended up not getting in a PH and doing something totally different. Okay. Well, sometimes that's life. Was it just the fellowship itself drained you? It was just so much? It was a combination of things. So for a lot of fellowships where they're child versions of an adult specialty, 
So with child psychiatry, a lot of programs are also in an attached attached to a program that also has an adult residence. Mm-hmm. So when it would come to call and things like that, the adult residents would take call and then the child fellows would just consult. Well, I was at a hospital, it was a children's hospital. So there were no residents. So all the call burden was on us. There was there were no juniors to take our call. Mm-hmm. It was extremely heavy call intensive. Okay. It was one of the top children's hospitals in the country. So we just had high volumes of everything. Boston was a difficult place at that time. I experienced probably more racism in that two years than my 40 something other years combined. Mm -hmm. So it was just exhausting. And I I think one of the things that's coming out with a lot of the shifts and the conversations happening around racial injustice is I realized that where I worked, it never felt safe enough to explain to my attendings what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever felt like they would understand and didn't really know how the information would be received. So I never actually talked to them about a lot of the experiences of racism I had in the hospital I worked in. Mm -hmm. And I was actually the only black physician in my entire department. Wow. How big was your department? Big enough that there should have been more than one black person because this is 2003. It's different now, but at that time I was it. So there was no attending really to talk to one of my mentors hooked me up with someone that was outside of our department. But it's just the fact that you start realizing that sometimes places don't feel safe to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, almost 20 years later, I had a conversation with someone there like, I didn't even know you experienced all that. I was like, well, I didn't tell anybody. So I think the current climate we're in is really important to start creating these safe spaces, places other than home or interpersonal spaces that there are times where work environments, educational environments could be improved if people knew it, but the people that are in charge may not be aware enough on their own or have the experiences to notice what's going on. And then the environment may not feel safe enough for someone to tell them. So I think the good thing about these dialogues is that it's starting to shift to turn work environments and educational environments into safer spaces. Which I think is why diversity and inclusion training is important. Yeah. Any last minute pearls about imposter syndrome or any other aspects of mental health as related to movement, or just life. I could talk forever. You <laughs> can't see me. Oh my God. I'm like, I wish your listeners could see me. <laughs> the first thing I'd like to tell your listeners is, is that I'd recommend them watch the movie, The Secret. The Secret. The Secret. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Okay. I need to watch it myself. Add it to my list. It's very helpful for helping to have a positive mindset. And it harnesses the law of attraction, but I really feel like when people are in alignment with the law of attraction and those kinds of things, that it's easier to feel like you deserve things. Yes. Because part of the issue with imposter syndrome is you don't feel qualified, but you probably don't feel like you deserve it either. That's true. So true. And when you don't feel like you deserve things, you can't accept your blessings. That's true, too. And... No one wants to miss a bunch of blessings. So that's my first pearl. The next one is, this is kind of something that kind of gets all the way circles back around. We're in a season where there's a lot of loss and drama and chaos. 
one of the things that's going to be very important, not just for imposter syndrome, but for your overall mental health is to be intentionally connected to people, is to be very intentional about actually having conversations and spending time with people. So one of the tips I typically give is to call at least one person every day, call video every day okay, and tell them that you love them. Yes. Okay. It helps you stay connected. And by staying connected and continuing to foster these interpersonal relationships, that helps build kind of like your squad, your section that's going to be there. If you're having imposter syndrome to remind you of how great you are, how qualified you are, what you really deserve. And you're going to need those people around you to remind you sometimes. And if I had to say one more thing is, and I I know you believe in this too, it's make sure you have a little quiet time. That's going to help you get connected with all that stuff that's in the inside. And also let you hear whatever God or your higher power is trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. which can change your life if you can get quiet enough to listen. I think those are the biggies with that. Do you want me to tell people where to find me? Or that- Yes, that was my next question. All right. <laughs> so you can find me on social media. I'm literally everywhere. At Dr. Erica, D-O-C-T-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-A. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-A. The next thing is, let's see. If you need a little mental health checkup or just want someone to check up on you or you're feeling stressed or exhausted or just not feeling like yourself, I won't even lie. I'm extremely good at what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having too good of a time. (laughs) You can find me at AskDrGoodwin.com, AskDrGoodwin.com. That's A-S-K-D-R-G-O-O-D-W-I-N.com. Even though I am a child adolescent adult psychiatrist, currently my practice, my private practice is only adults, but it is all telepsychiatry. So you have to be at least 18. So I will put those links in my show notes and also tell my listeners how they can get your book. Yes, it is at fixyourfairytalebook.com, fixyourfairytalebook.com. If you go there, you get an autographed copy. And Amazon keeps playing games. So actually the paper copy on Amazon is more expensive than my website. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just happy to be here. I'm so excited for you. I'm so proud of you, you know, to take the leap to do a podcast. I mean, that takes effort. That's the leap. And in the midst of all the other good work and all the things you're doing, you know, Little Miss, I'm a triathlon, my life away. I mean, it's just really impressive the amount of focus and care that you continue to show not only for yourself, but for the community. Well, thank you. That means a lot. You make me feel special. Cause you are. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of running is cheaper than therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please. If you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, 
that is running is cheaper than therapy o as in omaha l as in love b as in brown at gmail.com dr brown can also be reached via twitter facebook instagram and youtube handle we ouI life l-i-v-e we ouI love l-o-v-e again we ouI life l-i-v-e we ouI love thank you and please tune in again